Thank you, Leslie. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for your word, that you reveal yourself to us, that you um, have revealed to us primarily in the gift of your son, Jesus, but that you have given us your word. And so, Lord, I pray that today as we hear your word, um, that we would have an opportunity to uh, refocus our hearts on what it looks like to follow you. Uh, We might have an intentionality and a deliberateness to this calling that you've put on our lives because of what you've done for us, because of what we celebrate. We now have newness of life. We can walk with you. And so uh, would you take just a moment right where you're seated to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word today. Lord, show us more of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. It is great to be gathered together. And um, if you are visiting with us, I didn't say this earlier, but we would uh, love to know you're here. There's that little card in front. And um, if you wouldn't mind filling that out, and you can put these in the boxes in the back or the front um, at any point. But on the back side is a place for prayer. Uh, I know it's been a heavy week uh, for many of us, and would, we would love to come alongside uh, you in whatever is on your heart uh, this week and pray with you and for you uh, as we walk into this holy week. Uh, about 10 years ago, um, uh, almost exactly 10 years ago, our church used to meet at Hotchkiss Elementary, which is 200 yards that way. And we moved to Dallas Academy, which is on Buckner, uh, or kind of on the east side of, of White Rock Lake. Uh, and so that was almost exactly 10 years ago. My, the memories are popping up like 10 years ago, you posted this. 10 years ago, these things came up. And so it's been kind of fun to, to reflect on that 10 years ago. Some of you guys were there um, at that time. And thank you. I'm glad you're still here. Amazing. Uh, 10 years later. And, uh, but in that process, we filmed a video uh, and it was kind of a, hey, we're moving to a new place. Let's film a video to talk about what kind of church you want to be and you know, the vision behind what, what God was doing. And, uh, and I remember in that video, we kind of had this not so innovative idea uh, in church history, at least, but sort of you know, counterculture in our world today to be this local, uh, approachable, uh, small, like small enough to know each other, but also to be known uh, church that was really invested in the community. Uh, that would plant churches, uh, but that would also have a, a vibrancy of discipleship of, of all ages, that the kids and adults alike could, could grow as we follow Jesus together. And, uh, and we filmed this video, and I remember, uh, you know, thinking back about in that video, one of the things we talked about was this idea that it, culturally bigger is better in everything. We always think, you know, more must be better, bigger must be better. But what we said is we wanted to, instead of drive to that as our goal, what we said what we really hoped to be about was two things. A commitment to two things. One was the gospel of Jesus. That everything we do, everything we live in, everything that we function as a church, all the practices that we do are surrounded around the fact that Jesus came and that he lived and he died and he rose from the dead for us, changing everything about us. And that that gospel transformation is not just one time and then the rest of your life is just moving on and you know, trying to do it yourself, but that gospel impacts our everyday because of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his kindness and his drawing us in. To be radically focused on the gospel and what that means for us. And the second thing we said is that, that we wanted to be a church where we could say, we want to love local. We want to care, not only be a local church that meets locally, but also cares for the community around us. 
in planting churches, but also in, in partnering with ministries around the area and saying, could we be a gospel expression or a faithful gospel presence in the neighborhood? And I remember I said this in this video and looking back, I kind of laugh at it, but I said, my, our hope and our vision is that, that if we left, that if we cease to exist, the community would say, they miss us. They wish we were here. And at that point, no one knew we were a church. We didn't even know we were a church. I'm not sure if you asked anyone the name of our church who went to our church, like, what is our name again? What is this? But yet that thing we said 10 years ago, in many ways, what that was about was trying to say, what if God would have us be a faithful presence, a faithful gospel presence, focusing on the truth of the gospel and focusing on loving local caring for the neighborhood that we're in, investing in it in such a way that there would be longevity, in such a way there would be endurance, in such a way there would be staying power, because the only way you can have be a faithful presence for people say, Hotchkiss says, man, I'm so sad that you left. Or one of our ministry partners says, man, I wish that church was still here because of what they're doing. The only way to do that is to be a faithful gospel presence for a long time. And over the last uh, few, really years, but especially the last few months, one of the things we've been praying a lot about as a church and as leaders and elders is this idea of what does it mean to be a faithful presence with longevity? What does it mean to be a faithful presence in, in this neighborhood that focuses on the gospel and focuses on loving our neighbor for the long haul, way past us? And part of what that means, it, like it meant in 2013 when we moved, is what God is leading us to is this uh, insight into would God want us to expand our facility for the sake of being a faithful presence for the long haul? And part of what we are looking to do and prayerfully considering is, is to build a building on this site that would basically be for the next generation, from three-year-olds to eighth graders. That would be the focus of it. Uh, and so this is where we are in the process. And I, I wanted to kind of tell you this today because in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to be bringing more information to you, more, um, you know, hopefully drawings and plans. But all of this is about being a faithful presence for a long time in a community. And so that's our prayer and that's our hope. And so what I'm asking for you today, and like I said, I know you'll probably have questions like, okay, where, what's the drawings? Hopefully we'll have all of that in the coming weeks. But what I'm asking for you to do right now is just to pray for our church and pray for us. That as we walk this out, as you can imagine, there's lots of complications. As you can imagine, there's challenges, there's things to consider. Um, if you've done anything with construction it, or even heard of anyone who's ever done anything in construction, you know these things are complicated. But we are prayerfully trying to engage this conversation so that we can continue to move forward in that way. And so I ask you to pray for us. And secondly, just pray about potentially your role in that. Um, this is the church. We are the church. It's not a staff thing. It's not an elder thing. We are the church. And that we might together continue to be and build something like this, this desire that we have for a long time. Now, these two focuses that we said 10 years ago, the gospel and loving your neighbor, they're still our focus. They're, they were our focus 10 years ago. I hope they're our focus in the next 10 years, for the next 20 years, for the next 30 years, that we would be faithful as a church. And today, as we heard in the reading in Romans 13, Paul is drilling down and he's kind of concluding this idea of what does it look like to follow Jesus and to give our lives as a living sacrifice. And he basically says those two same things, that we would love our neighbor because of gospel transformation. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Romans 13 as we uh, continue in this uh, series, and as we look at what Paul is saying to the church, 
to the people of God to be focused on these two things. And he's going to start with loving your neighbor. And what he's going to end up saying is loving your neighbor comes out of gospel transformation. So look with me, verse 7. He says this, as we heard in the reading. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, if you remember, last week we were looking at Romans 13 where Paul says we are supposed to be submitted to governing authorities. And so if you owe taxes, pay the taxes. If you owe revenues, pay the revenues. If you have respect that is owed, pay that respect or pay that honor. And then he says this in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, here's what Paul's doing. He's taking this idea that we pay our taxes or that we pay revenue or that we pay respect out. And he says, uh, let no debt remain outstanding. You know, pay your debts. Don't let, don't let a debt remain outstanding. And then Paul does this kind of sort of like dad juke thing. Uh, and he says, you know, oh, no one anything except for love right? It's like your dad when he buys you uh, uh, food and you say, what do I owe you for the, for the lunch? He says, oh, let me tabulate that. Nothing but love, right? It's like this dad juke moment. That's what Paul's doing. He's trying to take us to this deeper principle. He's taking us to something. He says, we all have an unquenchable debt. And that debt is to love one another. Now, this debt, I think it's, we have to be careful here because the idea here is not that we have somehow need to repay God back. That's not the idea here. The idea is that we have, because we have received his love, the only reasonable response is to love one another. In fact, First John says it like this, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought, it's the same word for debt, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That we have a debt, and that debt is because of God's love for us to love one another. Now, what does it mean to love our neighbors? What does it mean to be in White Rock for White Rock? It means a lot of things. We talk about that quite a bit. Uh, it could mean, you know, taking someone food or, or um, serving someone in a way or, or serving hotchkiss or doing the things that, that we like to do. Or you may be buying overpriced popcorn from your neighbor, right? Um, it's just like, okay, sure, kid, I'll buy that because I love my neighbor. Uh, but yet what Paul does here is he turns this a little bit. And he's going to reframe this in a way that I don't think we necessarily think of love. And look what he does here. Uh, the, the, the last part of verse eight, he says this. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, what Paul has just done here is he has equated loving one another with obeying the commands of God. I don't think we necessarily think that way. When we say, well, what does it mean to love someone? Do we have this connection between love for one another and obeying the commandments of the scriptures? The greatest commandment, they asked Jesus, and he says the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes what we do is we hear that and go, okay, that's the highest law. And therefore, all the other commandments of God are sort of, yeah, they're just kind of not, they don't matter as much as this. But what does Jesus say? He says, 
All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, to truly love God and to truly love one another means that we will actually obey the commands of God. That when we obey the commands of God, we're actually loving one another. And that's what he does here. He makes this connection that that if we aim at true love, then all the commandments of God will fall into place. Now, again, I don't think we tend to think of this. Um, In our culture right now, the way we define love is tacit affirmation of whatever makes people happy or whatever will make people feel good. As long as I'm not going to make you feel bad, then that must mean I'm being loving. That's not the biblical idea of love. It's not really loving, actually, if you play that out in any relationship. Because what we want for people in the way we love people is their good. Remember, he says, love does no wrong, or it can be translated, love does no evil. Love and obedience to the commands of God, they go together. Let love be genuine, Paul said a few weeks ago. We looked at this in Romans 12. Hate what is evil and love what is good. And so he lists out a few commandments as a way of saying, this is how we love one another. He says, you love your neighbor by not committing adultery. Now, adultery is sexual intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. In in the scriptures, Jesus calls uh, lust in our heart adultery. And so to love one another and to keep the commandments, it means that we're going to step back and say, how do I pull back from the edge of, of lust or things that are going to cause me to not love my neighbor this way? He goes on. He says, love your neighbor by keeping the commandment. Do not murder. All of us are like, check. We got that one, right? But what does Jesus say about murder? That murder is when we kill someone with our lips, with what we say about them or what we say to them. And so we say, okay, how, how do I really love one another? I, I do not commit murder. I do not murder them with my lips. I do not have hate in my heart towards them. I deal with those issues and I walk through it. I step back from, from using my words to either hurt people or, hurt, um, or say things about people that are hurtful. He goes on and says, what about stealing? Stealing is taking something that's not ours. When we take something that doesn't belong to us, that belongs to somebody else, that is not loving whether that is time or stuff or resources. He goes on. He says, loving your neighbor by not coveting. Do not covet. Covet has uh, a lot in it. This idea of envy. This idea of greed. This idea of dissatisfaction or discontentment with where you are in life. What envy says or what coveting says is that um, I don't want you to have more. Uh, I don't want your happiness to exceed my happiness. That is incredibly unloving. You see what Paul's doing here? He's bringing the commands of God and he's saying to actually love one another means following God's commands, obeying his commands. And so his charge is to love your neighbor. And then it's not just those. He says this catch-all and all other commitments, all other commandments to love your neighbor. Now, do we see love and obedience this closely connected? Now he goes on and he says, I want you to be intentional and deliberate. Keep going with me. Verse 11. So besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so he says, how do we walk this out? 
He gives us these commands. Cast off. The imagery here is like throwing off a jacket. Cast off the, the, uh, the works of darkness. Put on, clothe ourselves with the armor or the weapons of light. Walk properly in the daytime, things of life and light, uh, but do not walk in the stuff of darkness. This is very intentional commands, he says. Cast off, put on, walk one way, not the other. And then he says, if we walk in darkness, there's the fruit of that. The fruit of walking in darkness is this list that, uh, of sins that we just heard that Paul mentions as a, as a sort of a catch-all list of it, include everything in it. But each of these, and a lot of what Paul has just said, are disordered loves. If we think about it that way. They're unloving. The disordered love of, of pleasure or trying to cover our pain or to numb out through orgies and drunkenness and things like that. The disordered love of, of being, uh, of loving, uh, the disordered love of others. Sexual morality, which is, which is taking something that God has created in the context of marriage and outside of that, walking in it. It's a disordered love of others. The disordered love of, of being right. Notice in the midst of this list, he brings up quarreling and divisiveness. It's the disordered love of I must be right. Or the disordered love of self, which again, he says, jealousy, envy, comparison. Each of these are walking in the darkness. And they expose something in us that something needs to change. The invitation is to walk in the light and to obey God. And by doing so, we're actually loving our neighbor. This requires an intentionality and a deliberateness to not let these disordered loves rule our hearts and our minds. But then I think he gives what maybe I would consider the, the how in this. Because on this Palm Sunday, I, I think as we reflect on Jesus entering into Jerusalem, there are plenty of people who said Hosanna. There are plenty of people who, who claimed that he was king. And yet for us, I think this, there's an invitation to say, are we going to just acknowledge him? Or are we going to submit to him as king? Are we going to say, truly, Hosanna, save us. You are our king. We're going to submit our lives to him. Look back at verse 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, if we are going to live these two, these two things, if we're going to love our neighbor, we must be transformed by the gospel. Where do I get that? Look at this first part. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this command, clothe yourself with Christ. Be so identified with him that everything changes. Truly, I cannot love the way of Christ, love in the way of Christ. I cannot walk in the light unless I have put on Christ. And I, and I want to pause here for a minute because I think there's a temptation for us. And maybe if we've been doing this for a little bit while, for a while, we're kind of walking in it. We, okay, the temptation to end up sort of thinking that following Christ only looks like simply not walking in the darkness and walking in the light. It's sort of this moral gospel, this idea that if, I, if only I could do this, these right things, then everything will work out right for me. And we kind of have this temptation for parents to go, okay, I got to do all these right things, so then hopefully my kids will be okay. In some ways, we, we can have this temptation to sort of draft off of, the, of what Christ has done for us. But what is essential in this is that we must encounter and know the indescribable grace of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And because of that fact and that fact alone, we are transformed. We don't put on Christ because of something we did or something we do. We only are able to put on Christ because of what he has done for us. The only way we're going to walk in light is because of what Jesus has done for us and we're identified in him. Uh, we had Christians' baptism in the first service and, and it, it reminds me of this passage. I'm going to read it in Romans 6. I'll have it on the screen. But do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This putting on Jesus, putting on Christ is this idea of being identified solely in him, which is what baptism is a picture of. That when Christ died, we died, buried in the lightness of his death. And that because of his resurrection, we are raised to walk in newness of life. Not only are our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, but because Christ was raised, we walk in newness of life. And so this is this admonition that Paul's giving these followers of Jesus. Put on Christ. Walk solely in that identity. And then he says, walk solely in that identity, put on Christ. And then he says, and make no provision for the flesh that you will gratify its desires. Make no provision. It's a great phrase. If you think about all the things we make provision for, we plan for the week, we plan for what's coming up. Maybe, let's say you're having a baby. You set up a nursery, you get a registry, you get a crib, a diapers. If you're about to have a baby, you have a go bag, right? I'm prepared to go. Let's say you're preparing for a road trip. You, you, you make a plan, you, have, you put gas in the car, you, you, know, you have snacks maybe. Um, if you have kids, maybe you have devices and headphones, hypothetically. Um, you're making provisions ahead of time. And he says, make no provisions for the flesh, so what he's saying is that there's a deliberateness to this. That we actually look at, at our life because we've put on Christ because we're identified in him. And we say, okay, I'm not going to make provisions to go down that road towards darkness. I'm not going to make provisions that's going to lead me down this path where leading to all the fruit of this. I'm going to instead make provisions to walk in the light. And so that means that if envy, which has come up already twice in this passage, envy or comparison or, or covetousness, it's a struggle for us. Then we make provisions for that. How, how am I going to avoid this? How, what practical things am I going to do to make sure that I don't get into my situations where that becomes more and more a struggle for me? Maybe that has something to do with social media or HGTV or whatever. Um, or for us, if it's lust and sensuality, knowing that that is a struggle for us. We make provisions in a way to say, I, I'm going to prepare so that the things that come before my eyes, the things that I read, the things that I see uh, are not those things. So that I cannot, so I make no provisions for the flesh. Or maybe it's uh, deceit, whether it's, you know, uh, blatant or even just like saying what people want to hear, the sort of the people pleasing part of us. If that's our struggle, then we make provisions to tell the truth. To not put ourselves in places where we say, okay, I, I've got to please that person. I'm going to be honest. Or if it's gossip or, or corrupting talk is our struggle, I'm mean, going go on and on. We don't present ourselves in situations where that will run rampant. Maybe we step away or walk away. Whatever that is, we make no provisions for the flesh. There's a deliberateness to this that Paul is saying. There's an intentionality because we've put on Christ to walk in the light. And so Paul says, we love our neighbor because God loved us. How do we love? By keeping the commands of God. We're intentional to walk in light, not in darkness, making no provision for the flesh, all because we have put on Christ because of what Christ has done for us. 
But right in the middle of this, I don't want us to miss this. Verse 11, I'm gonna read it again. It says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What is Paul saying here? He's saying there's an urgency to this. I don't think that we often think of love and obedience as something that's urgent. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying this is urgent. Why? Because Jesus is returning. He puts us in a gospel timeline. Christ has come and he's, he's died and he's rose from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's returning. And every moment is nearer to when Christ will return. There's an urgency that we need to have about love and obedience. And yet for us, it's so easy to get lulled back to sleep. And often it's things like a school shooting or a death of a neighbor or something like that that wakes us up. And yet what Paul is saying is, don't be lulled to sleep. Stay awake. Wake up to the fact that what we have, because we have been able to put on Christ because of what Jesus has done for us, there's an urgency to the way we love our neighbor, our friends, our community, our family. There's an urgency to which we obey the commands of God because they actually are for our best and because they show the love for our neighbor. All for him. And I think for many of us, there's lots of urgent things in our life. We could all write down probably the list of things that are urgent Monday morning. But what Paul is saying is, I want this to be urgent. As followers of Jesus, there's an urgency and a desire to say, this is what needs to be forefront in my mind. Putting on Christ, loving our neighbor, and obeying his commands for his glory. Let's pray. Father, as we um, walk into this Holy Week, we pray that some very practical ways that we would wake up. We know our tendency to be lulled to sleep. We know our, our tendency, as sad as it sounds, to Someone will say, yeah, no, I, I get it. I'm supposed to love my neighbor and put on Christ and obey the commandments of God. And in some ways, we almost just make that kind of a yada, 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 an add-on, just that we forget it. But Lord, our prayer for us today is that you'd wake us up to it. You would wake us up to the fact that because we are yours, because we are identified in you, we can put on Christ and now live with this love that you have given us, this obedience that you have given us to follow you. And so Lord, I I pray uh, for those of us that um, maybe there's something on our heart as we prepare for communion that we need to repent from. Maybe it's one of these um, disordered loves that, that Paul talked about. Or maybe it's just the recognition that obedience and love go together. Lord, we repent from the ways we have not done that. And we turn away from that. And, and in that turning, like, like Paul says, we want to make no provision for the flesh. Would you give us the deliberateness and the, intention, the intentionality to live that out in our lives?
And Lord, ultimately, may, we, may our hearts be focused on what we have come to celebrate, the fact that Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection and his pending return has changed everything about us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.